This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to Trumpet Hour. I'm your host, Philip Nice, for today, Friday, October 27th. I'm speaking to you from one of our three KPCG studios, the others being across the campus here in Edmond, Oklahoma, and across the pond there in Edstone, England. And in England, joining you and me by the wonders of the internet and the help of technician Parker Campbell is the assistant managing editor of thetrumpet.com and a contributing editor for the Philadelphia Trumpet, Richard Palmer. Hello to you, sir. Good afternoon. And with him is the newest member of the Trumpet staff, Mihailo Zekic. You'll find quite a number of articles from him on thetrumpet.com and in the Philadelphia Trumpet print edition, the latest edition of which, by the way, is at the printer. So make sure to subscribe, get your own print copy, starting with the January 2024 edition at thetrumpet.com slash subscribe. Or you can dial 1-800-772-8577 and talk to some of our, our very own staff right here on this campus, ready and willing to sign you up for your free subscription. So anyway, hello, Mihailo. Hello to you, too. Here in the studio, we'll have Andrew Miller joining us shortly after completing another engagement. He actually teaches at the Imperial Academy Grade School in the mornings. He also, as you might know, writes frequently for the aforementioned thetrumpet.com and Philadelphia Trumpet. And as you might not know, he is the one who fact checks and who puts the info in infographic there on the center spread of the print edition, those large two-page maps and graphs and so forth. Jeremiah Jacques also teaches at Imperial Academy, and every other week he hosts the Wednesday edition of Trumpet Hour. He also writes for thetrumpet.com and for the Philadelphia Trumpet, and he is with me here in the Edmond studio right now. Hello, Jeremiah. Hello there. Great to be with you. So each of these men has been assigned to watch one of the four general regions of the globe, and there's a specific reason why they are divided up this way. It's no surprise for those of you who are longtime listeners. But for every Week in Review edition of the show, we take the four regions one by one and finish with a roundtable discussion with everyone chipping in. Sometimes we respond to listener feedback. So, listener, give us some feedback. We'll give you the email address at the end of the show. But today that panel, uh, right before the end of the show, uh, will be about a worldwide evil that has shot back to prominence. So we'll end with something that traces back to the Middle East, and we'll start with the Middle East. We'll get the three most newsworthy events concerning that region, then the main story for this week, and we'll get it from Mihailo Zekic. Okay, so as always, the Middle East always seems to be going up in flames. Uh, a lot of it has to do with the current war between Israel and Hamas uh, around Gaza right now. On Tuesday, the United Nations Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, made some comments uh, suggesting that Israel brought it upon itself with what happened on October 7th. He said that the uh, Hamas attacks, quote, did not happen in a vacuum, which, I mean, blaming the Jews for their own demise is like one of the oldest tropes of anti-Semitism there is. Israel fired back by uh, suspending visas for U.N. employees and calling on Guterres to resign. Uh, the U.N. going after Israel is nothing new, but that Israel is actually responding by making it harder for the U.N. to work in Israel, I think, shows that Israel is getting fed up with all that. Speaking of Hamas, on October 25th, the Wall Street Journal uh, gave a report suggesting that Hamas or their terrorists trained in Iran in September, the month before the attack, 
in order to get ready for this. There's a lot of people that keep disputing that uh, Iran is in, directly involved, that Iran was directly planning. According to the journal, according to the sources they found, about 500 terrorists, which is roughly half the number that broke into Israel on October 7th, were training in Iran under the leadership of the Quds Force, which is is Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps' external operations, special operations group. Uh, reportedly, Quds Force leader Esmail Khani was there to oversee it. To this day, the United States still claims that there's no evidence the, that Iran orchestrated the attack. We'll see what happens with that. But that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody on Iran's side was up to speed with what was happening that same day, Al Monitor, which is a magazine that focuses on the Middle East, released some uh, comments from some commanders in the popular mobilization forces, Iran-backed uh, mil militias in Iraq, where they stated that the timing of the attack itself was up to Hamas. It didn't inform them or Hezbollah about what was going to happen on which particular day, and that they're actually getting a little angry with Hamas for trying to suck them into a war that they weren't prepared for. Um, it seem, remains to be seen how many of Iran's other proxies around the Middle East will get involved in this war. But it's interesting to see that there isn't as united of a front as sometimes Iran likes to make it look like. I, I, I didn't hear some of what you said because I'm just stuck on this. According to the Wall Street Journal, Hamas was training in Iran. Hamas was training in Iran immediately before the massacre that it committed. Hamas was training in Iran. I'm going to ask you to uh, add to our document the the link to that article. Uh, what is the main story that you're going to bring to us uh, for the Middle East this week? Well, I don't know how you feel about this, but I'm going to circle back to a certain country I cover often, which is Saudi Arabia. Um, there's been more developments. We've talked a lot on this program about them trying to open up relations with Israel and that kind of thing. Uh, according to the White House, this Tuesday, uh, they announced that Saudi Arabia still wants to do that, despite all their comments at the beginning of the war about uh, this is an Israeli aggression and uh, we need to back off on this, despite potentially getting a lot of the Arab world angry at them for supporting Israel. They apparently are moving forward. Biden's office announced, or quote, they affirmed the importance of working towards a sustainable peace between Israelis and Palestinians. As soon as the crisis subsides, building on the work that was already underway between Saudi Arabia and the United States over recent months, end quote. Now, Biden has been saying and his men have been saying, including uh, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, since the war had started, that negotiations, while they're having a bit of difficulty, they can still move forward. But why am I bringing this up as opposed to everything else I just mentioned? Why is Saudi Arabia some deal going on between Saudi Arabia and Israel that hasn't even come to fruit yet? Why is that important? Well, as I've covered on this program before, the little catch in this is that in exchange for opening up an embassy in Tel Aviv, Saudi Arabia wants the United States to help set up a nuclear program for them. When we are concerned of any country getting a nuclear weapon, that's a bad, uh, uh, that's a bad uh, uh, move. And you don't need to get a nuclear weapon because you cannot use it. Even if Iran gets a nuclear weapon, any country use a nuclear weapon, that means they are having a war with the rest of the world. The world cannot see another Hiroshima. If the world sees 100,000 people dead, 
that means you are in a war with the rest of the world. So it's a useless uh, uh, effort to reach a nuclear uh, weapon because you cannot use it. If you use it, you got to have a big fight with the rest of the world. If they get one, will you? If they get one, we have to get one. That was Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman talking to Fox's Brett Bayer last month. As you can see, he's pretty anxious about Iran's nuclear program. The Saudis officially claim they're, they want a program for civilian purposes. He basically admitted in that interview that he wants one to counter Iran's nu- nuclear program. And a lot of people are interpreting this war between Israel and Hamas as Iran's provocation to try to stop that from happening, what you just heard, to try to stop the Saudis from getting a nuclear bomb. Uh, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei gave a speech right before the war started saying that uh, those that are trying to normalize with relations with Israel are making a mistake. That was a thinly veiled uh, reference to Saudi Arabia. Since the Saudis are saying that, or at least Americans are saying the Saudis still want to go ahead with this, this shows Iran's plan in this instance at least did not work. This did not scare Saudi Arabia to back off. If anything, these comments from the White House should be interpreted that the Saudis are moving forward. They wouldn't be talking with the Israelis. They wouldn't still want to do this otherwise, which tells me they're really, really scared. They see what's happening in Iran, and they see how much power Iran has with this war with Hamas and other things like that. And... It's basically make or break for them at this point. We'll see how it all turns out. There's a lot we don't know. There's, I'm sure, a lot more information that's going to come out in the days and weeks coming up. But if the Saudis are this desperate to get a nuclear bomb, you can be sure that the Middle East, well, aside from Iran almost getting a bomb itself, you can be sure the Middle East is going to become a nuclear tinderbox very, very soon. That's why I wonder if, if Iran even cares. I could see you look at Iran's background and the, the Mahdiist religion or interpretation of Shia Islam that most in Iran or certainly most Shia in Iran follow and this belief that global chaos will hasten the return of this 12th imam that's going to lead the world into a, a new Muslim caliphate. This sounds like exactly the kind of thing that they would want, doesn't it? Uh, Saudi Arabia getting a nuclear bomb, more nuclear chaos, exactly the kind of thing that their whole philosophy revolves around creating. Well, look, I mean, I I think they want to create the Shia crescent uh, before they go there. But you're exactly right. I mean, Hamas, uh, radical Islamists, you've seen them in the streets shouting and screaming that the Jews love life, but we love death. Right. They just say it like that. That's that's literally what the clip that I saw. Uh, he's, he's shouting. People are cheering all around, waving the Palestinian flag, saying we love death because we think that life begins at death. We want to die. So as Mr. Flurry said repeatedly, the 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 calculus is far different from, say, the Soviets and their nuclear arsenal. Uh, they don't want to die. Um, they don't want to start uh, mutually assured destruction. Iran, different calculation. They they don't care so much. So I, I, I think they're not. I think they would like to establish a caliphate and have it for a while. Uh, but if that tinderbox blows, according to their religion, uh, that's not a bad thing. But Mahilo, you uh, hit us with Hamas was training in Iran. Uh, this thing that's still like blinking like a flashing red sign in my in my mind. You, you gave us that, but then you spent more time on this Saudi Arabia deal. Why did you dwell on the, on the situation in Saudi Arabia? As a disclaimer, I'll say this. I'm not expecting Saudi Arabia to start World War III. 
But with that being said, I mean, nuclear weapons, especially somewhere in as volatile as the Middle East. I mean, our editor in chief, Mr. Gerald Fleury, often says that our number one problem today is human survival. More and more countries, including and especially in this very unstable region, getting these nuclear weapons will make that number one problem way, way more of a problem. And I mean, Saudi Arabia is a pretty stable country at this point. Uh, revolutions and coups and civil wars and that kind of thing happen all the time. What happens if one of these terror groups gets a hold of those weapons? Or as Mr. Palmer was saying, what happens if Iran, which is a terror group in and of itself or a terror state, beats them to it? We uh, often talk about a prophecy in Matthew chapter 24, verses 21 to 22, that refers to a time of great tribulation so bad that not a person would be saved alive if it wasn't stopped. Our editor-in-chief has talked a lot about that, meaning nuclear warfare. More and more countries getting nuclear weapons, more and more countries being compelled to use them brings us that much closer to Matthew 24. Now, if our listeners would like to learn a little bit more about this, I have a couple pieces uh, that I recommend. Both of them are from our latest print edition. Both articles are up on the website. We have an article called What Iran Fears. That's What Iran Fears, which talks about what this aspect of the Saudis and their nuclear program in this whole uh, war with Gaza. If they would like to learn more about Hamas training in Iran and Iran being the power behind Hamas. We have an article that's titled just about that, The Real Power Behind Hamas. It's one of our features in the magazine. It goes into a lot more detail on what Iran is doing with Hamas, with Gaza, and why it's doing it. And just as a reminder, listener, what Mihailo referred to there is Matthew 24. This is not a minor prophet. This is not something obscure. The prophet involved in this is Jesus Christ. So if you go to church every week, um, and you, you hear about Jesus Christ, ask about what he prophesied, what he said would happen in the future. And, and Matthew 24 in particular uh, could not happen anytime except for in this modern age. So that's a, a very a relevant uh, scripture to point to, as well as the articles, What Iran Fears at thetrumpet.com and The Real Power Behind Hamas. Um, that's in those are also in the uh, the trumpet print edition so as we said before subscribe at the trumpet.com slash subscribe um, it's just wild what we're getting used to if i can put it that way we're getting used to all sorts of perversions and and ins insane things and evils um here in the west we're getting used to um the idea of iran which may have trained mass murderers in how to mass murder on october 7th getting nuclear weapons, and now we're kind of getting used to the idea of uh, Saudi Arabia, its main rival in the region, having nuclear weapons and that tinderbox being a nuclear tinderbox. Let's go on to our, our second of four regions, which is Asia. Jeremiah Jacques, while much of the world is looking at the Middle East for very good reason, what has been happening in the eastern half of this planet? Yeah, well, first of all, the United States Department of Defense just released its 2023 China Military Power Report. And uh, the findings, as we would expect, show that China is growing militarily far more powerful, especially in the realms of nuclear weapons, cyber warfare capabilities, and space forces. 
And then the report also brings out that uh, China's military is drawing closer and closer to Russia's. And, you know, the, the combined threat is far more serious than if either of these nations were on their own. So it's just a, a pretty sobering update on this trend. And it shows that the pillars of peace are crumbling. And then another story here about Kazakhstan, not a nation we speak about very often, but this is a former Soviet republic. And this week, a new report showed that Kazakhstan is helping Russia to bypass the sanctions that America and other Western countries have levied on Russia. This report was in The Diplomat, and it found that uh, over the last year, Kazakhstan's imports and exports have both surged by billions of dollars worth. Kazakhstan, of course, has terrible corruption problems since it's still intimately connected to Russia. And the Russians are exploiting all of that to smuggle huge amounts of Russian goods into Kazakhstan and then to the rest of the world from there. And then the other way around as well, bringing goods from around the world into Russia through Kazakhstan that they buy through shell companies and in other ways. So it just shows that all the sanctions that the U.S. thinks are going to cut into Russia's economy are far duller than we would think. And, and that means Russia's better positioned to keep on pouring money into its war. And then another quick one here about another one of the stands, Kyrgyzstan this time. Uh, they just hosted a big meeting of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. This uh, organization is led by Russia and China. It also includes India, Pakistan, and just about all of the Central Asian nations. So this week, leaders from these nations have been um, just having conferences to work on ways to work together more closely on a whole range of issues. The Bible tells us to watch for these nations of Asia to unify together in the modern era. And this uh, organization, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, seems to be one of the main vehicles that's driving that unification process forward. So Asia, population in the billions Great peoples, great powers are not taking a break while people focus on the Middle East. Watch and pray, as was said by that same prophet we referred to earlier. So you've you've focused in on one of the uh, one of the main events happening in Asia, and uh, go ahead and describe that to us. Sure. Yeah, I think the big one is that we have clear evidence showing that. Over the last two decades, Russia and China have grown dramatically more ruthless and more hostile to the West. And they're now apparently joining forces with some of the most sinister elements on the planet just in order to better oppose America. So we can see this clearly by comparing the way Russia and China reacted to the 9-11 attacks back in 2001 and the way they're reacting now to the attacks on Israel, which you could call Israel's 9-11. So... You know, back in 2001, Vladimir Putin was actually the first world leader to call U.S. President George W. Bush. And he, uh, you know, he expressed full support for a tough American response to what Putin called the barbaric attacks. Um, and it went beyond words. Also, Putin ended up brokering a big deal for the U.S. military to use air bases in Central Asia, inside countries, well inside of uh, Russia's, you know, sphere of influence with no quid pro quo. He said, yeah, come on in, use these bases. So it was a huge help to the Americans. And then if we look at China 
in the time after 9-11, it was a similar situation. China's leadership condemned the terrorist attacks in no uncertain terms and expressed solidarity with the U.S. And China even ramped up its intelligence sharing with America by a considerable margin just to help bring the perpetrators to justice. Uh, So that was in 2001 and the years just after that. But now here we are 23 years on with a, a new attack on one of America's closest partners that was every bit as diabolical as 9-11. But this time around, the leadership of Russia and China can't even bring themselves to condemn Hamas. China has actually taken Hamas's side, criticizing what it calls Israel's excessive retaliatory actions. Russia has gone a similar route. Its ambassador to the UN actually blamed America for bearing responsibility for uh everything that's going on there. And Russia called for a ceasefire that would effectively grant Hamas impunity for all these demonic atrocities. This week, Russia even became the first and only country in the world to host an official Hamas delegation after October 7th. So it's amazing to me that that dark accolade, that that first, didn't go to Turkey or Qatar or even Iran. No, It was Russia who invited these murderous zealots to Moscow to have tea and conversation. We've got a clip here from Danny Danan. This is Israel's former ambassador to the UN, and and he conveys just how stunned the Israelis are by the perverse stance that Russia has taken on Hamas's massacre. This is unacceptable. We have witnessed a whole attack against Israelis. 1,200 people were killed, butchered in a daylight. So we expect more than a leader. So you can hear there just how, how stunned and appalled the Israelis are by Russia basically siding with Hamas. After having suffered all this demonic brutality, the Israelis can't fathom how both Russia and China could fail to even acknowledge the sheer evil of it. The evil, your main story this week focuses in on the evil. There is evil evil exists. It is demonic. How, how can you, how else can you describe that? And we're not just saying this broadly, you know, evil's out there somewhere. Like look at Hamas having tea in Moscow. The, the evil is out there. It, you can see it in specific events. You can see it getting stronger. And if you're sitting there at home or driving your car or what have you in 2023, after October 7th, still thinking or assuming that everything evolved and nothing exists but matter and energy and there is no spirit, there is no real evil, you know, it's just a social construct that it's wrong to murder a pregnant woman, Um, you need to wake up. There is a spirit, there is definitely evil, there definitely is right and wrong and, and how this this, I, I just really appreciate that you framed it this way because this is the accurate way to frame these events um, and, and showing that over the course of time, over the past you know, 20 plus years, the change and, and the rising evil. Um, I, I just find it uh, remarkable and something that our listeners need to, need to wake up to. I fully agree. And, and I think that one of the most appalling aspects of this Russian and Chinese apparent solidarity with Hamas is the fact that 19 of the people confirmed to have been killed by the Hamas terrorists were Russian citizens, and four were Chinese, and now at least two Russians and one Chinese are among the hostages that Hamas continues to hold. So you would think that that 
would help the leaders of Russia and China to see how evil all of this is. But the minds of these leaders have been calcified by hatred, and they are so dead set on opposing America and its partners that I think they count their own slain citizens as collateral damage. They say, well, you know, these kinds of losses are sometimes necessary if it means the U.S. side suffers more. So it's very chilling to me because, you know, back in 2001, Russia and China, they were not friends to America by any means, but they were able to recognize sheer evil when it reared its head. And they were apparently even shaken and briefly humbled by the side of it. But now we're way past that. And these leaders are consumed by hatred that blinds them even to the most obvious kind of wickedness. And that's a, it's a disturbing reality to accept but we shouldn't have been caught off guard by this because there is a prophecy in the book of Luke about the age that we're now living in. It calls this the times of the Gentiles. And that means basically in a time when America is no longer the primary world power that brings you know, a measure of stability to the world. That's over. And instead, you have countries like Russia, China, Iran, some of the European nations who will rise up and become the primary global hegemons instead. So it's a major shift in geopolitics that we were warned about. And if you look around the planet today with America growing so weak, so internally divided, and with Russia and China growing more determined to oppose America and its partners in any way they can, and more dead set on increasing their power, then it's clear that uh, this major shift that was prophesied about thousands of years ago, it is now happening. The article that you pointed me to is, is one that springs immediately to mind by Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry, World Leaders Who No Longer Have a Human Mind. The title is World Leaders Who No Longer Have a Human Mind. Look at the show notes. We'll, we'll have a link there. This is from, again, the print edition of The Trumpet. And this is another example of something that, that he, he, he brought out. He, he, he gave a message on this and then wrote about this. And there was not this, this news peg, as we call it, of he was not responding to October 7th. He was writing this before October 7th. And then you saw it. You saw people acting like they don't have a human mind, acting like savage uh, animals in what they did to other human beings. And now you are seeing people welcoming them uh, into, you know, diplomacy and so forth. That article is so important. World leaders who no longer have a human mind. You see that better to forsake your own Russian citizens, Chinese citizens, in order to hate, in order to better hate and better weaken and better eventually attack and kill uh, your enemies. This is not the same world that you were living in a few years ago, uh, or certainly not the same world that you grew up in. And and interestingly, who was that prophet who said to watch and pray and to look for, as you said, the times of the Gentiles? Again, that particular prophet happened to be Jesus Christ. So if you're if your professor, you know, is telling you that there's no such thing as a spirit world. Um, you need to get a new professor. If your preacher is is not telling you what Jesus Christ prophesied, it's a huge part of what he did. So you need some explanation for that. You've got to answer for that. And these are specific prophecies, and we're seeing them occur as you've tied those those events so well to their origin. So that's the Asia region. Thank you, Jeremiah Jacques. That's region two of four. Our third region today is Europe. Mr. Palmer, can you update the listener on Europe for us? 
Yes, a lot of the news in Europe this week revolves around some interesting political shifts. Switzerland held uh, an election and you had the fringe right once again be the the massive winners, the Swiss People's Party. One thing that a lot of people are talking about from this election is both the boost in support for this, the Swiss People's Party and the collapse in support for the Greens. Uh, that kind of the last time around in 2019, the big standouts were the big win from the Swiss People's Party, but then also that the Greens did really well. Uh, you're seeing a Europe that is souring on environmentalism as they start to come face to face with the costs of that. And it's these fringe parties that are benefiting because just about all the mainstream parties are also signed up with environmentalism. And this brings us to a pretty significant news event coming out of Germany, where Germany has a new political party. This has been long rumored, but it uh, finally happened this week. So Sarah Wagenacht, she's the co-leader of the left party. That's a that's the successor to Germany's Communist Party, basically. Uh, her husband is Oscar Lafontaine. He used to be a top leader within the Social Democratic Party that's currently in government. But uh, she's left the left party to create a new kind of far left party that that fills a hole that I think has a lot of potential for support that no one else is really filling right now in Europe. So it's communist and uh, kind of overtly radical left. It's not environmentalist, though. So it's definitely not pro-green, pro-big spending on, on radical environmentalism. Uh, and it's not pro-immigration. And in fact, it wants to be tough on migration and on defending Germany and Europe's borders. I think there's some intellectual consistency there. You know, it, it's it's the poor that end up having to pay a lot of these for for. Green, you know, they end up not being able to afford a car because there's all kinds of regulations on emissions, and now you're forcing people to buy electric vehicles and this kind of thing. It's often the poor that end up suffering un for mass migration because it's their jobs that get taken by cheap uh, migrant workers. And uh, so she's she's kind of burst onto the scenes with this new party, and this could be pretty transformational for Germany. I think, firstly, it's worth stepping back and say and looking at wow, we've gotten to the point in modern Germany where you have a, a kind of neo-Nazi party and the alternative for Deutschland, certainly a far-right party, and now a neo-communist party, uh, another one, I guess, after the left party, that are making waves in German politics. How much has gone wrong already in Germany when these two are kind of the new exciting political experiments that we're going back to communism and Nazism? And this is exactly what you had in the 1930s, where those two movements were kind of rose almost as mirror images of each other. But then also it's going to completely gum up German politics because you've now got you know, if you refuse to if you say, well, we refuse to work with the alternative for Deutschland and we refuse to work with this far left party because they're both too extreme. It's very hard to see any kind of viable coalition. The current coalition government wouldn't work if Wagenknecht's party got just 10% of the vote. Uh, potentially even a coalition of just the main left-wing party and the main right-wing party may not work. You know, This kind of equivalent of a coalition between the Republicans and the Democrats may not even be able to get 50%. So you could reach the point where there's just no functioning democratic government possible within Germany. We are, it's been a long-term story, 
it's been unfolding over the course of 10 years and news favors what is splashy and new. So I think it's been underreported because of that. But we're watching German democracy stop functioning. And this looks like that could be the next step in that. And and a strong German leader is imminent shows how this democracy is is prophesied to cease to function and even just to come to a complete standstill. So that was my very brief uh, <laughs> rundown of the other important news in Europe. <laughs> right. And and uh, we have been watching that for a while. And and in, in America, we're used to the, the two main parties and they have infighting within themselves, but they've got the, the two main parties. Basically, since the Civil War, we've had the Republican Party and the Democrats. In in Europe, there are more parties and there's more, you know, uh, squabbling and so forth, like open openly. But it is it is getting uh, it's spinning, for, you know, more and more wildly uh, as as time goes on. Uh, well, the thing is that in Germany, basically until the mid 90s, it was like the U.S., Pretty much with the two main, I mean, the smaller parties played a bit of a larger role, mm -hmm. but they were getting 40, 50 percent of the vote in the same way that 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 they do in the States as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so we've seen a, a, a we've seen them transition from a two party system to a coalition system to a non-functioning. <laughs> right, right. To uh, do we really need democracy kind of moment uh, in Europe? Um, you've also got another story for us that that you want to uh, drill down on. What is that one? Yeah, we've touched on this in recent weeks, but the European Union and Germany in particular is increasingly moving into Cyprus. Cyprus, of course, uh, has always been a tremendous strategic asset. Cyprus was pretty much one of Britain's key seagates during the time of the British Empire and, and, and even later. To this day, there's, a, there's major British military bases on Cyprus. But over time, we've seen the European Union, particularly when Britain was part of the EU, kind of muscle its way into those bases, play on a much more critical role. And now with both Germany, with France, with uh, the Netherlands, other European countries preparing to get more involved in the Middle East, they're moving in and taking over Cyprus and uh, expanding their military presence in Cyprus. So Germany sent. We we talked in the in, in the the kind of the brief run up to the news last week about Germany sending their special forces to Cyprus. They sent additional forces on October twenty first. The Netherlands sent forces to Cyprus. Uh, Politics Today had a story. They wrote that now that Britain has left the EU, its vital military bases in Cyprus are at the mercy of a Greek Cypriot regime drunk on the political leverage handed to it by Brussels. And they're very keen to sever those ties with Britain and instead cement ties with France and with Germany. Uh, Politics Today talked about France looking at cementing, establishing its own military presence in Cyprus. You're kind of having French military bases in there. Well, you had a force piece. This was even before this, this all broke out earlier in the year, talking about Cyprus being on the verge of the most significant military buildup since the 1990s, that's them expanding their own military using European equipment. So you're seeing uh, you're seeing a transformation happening now as a response to what's happening in Gaza as Europe muscles in on Cyprus. And this is something that ties directly into a couple of critical Bible prophecies. You know, this that Mr. Armstrong had a lot of very specific things to say about Britain losing its Seagates. And we have a whole chapter, a whole section on that in our free booklet. He was right that goes over the Bible reasons that he said this, 
that there are specific Bible prophecies about God giving Britain and America strategic choke points, these Seagates and the same prophecies God said he would take them away. And we're watching that happen real time in Cyprus with one of these few remaining Seagates. So that's something very specific, measurable, testable that that Mr. Armstrong forecast because of what the Bible said. And Cyprus is also an island that Trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry has focused particularly on. He had a section in that in the King of the South booklet that talked about, or I think it was Jerusalem and Prophecy, sorry, that talked about the way, the role that Cyprus has often been used as Europe projects power into the Middle East. Bible prophecy tells us that we're going to see Europe projecting power into the Middle East again. Therefore, Cyprus would logically play a major role in that. We saw Germany use the uh, economic crisis in Cyprus several years ago to cement their hold on the island. And now we're seeing a military step up in that. That their intentions on Cyprus shows that there's, and the, how hard they've worked to get control of Cyprus shows a strategy in moving into the Middle East. So actually Cyprus was on the front cover of our November, December, 2019 trumpet print article. And that article, Why Germany Conquers Cyprus, uh, isn't Conquered Cyprus is another article that goes through a whole lot of specifics. So it's it's in a few different ways an opportunity to see Bible prophecy being fulfilled in a very detailed way. We are going to have uh, a lot for you in the show notes uh, this week. Strong German leader is imminent. We'll be in there. He was right. And that November, December 2019 trumpet, bright orange cover with the island of Cyprus on there and a German flag planted upon it. Uh, why Germany conquered Cyprus um, just before the uh, COVID wall-to-wall coverage uh, dominated uh, the following year. Uh, would that the major networks and the mainstream executives use their distribution power to focus on some of these stories uh, to make, you know, they could make Cyprus a buzzword overnight if they if they wanted to. But uh, we'll do what we can to focus you on world events that are just as important as what you're seeing in the headline news and important because of these prophets of which we have spoken. The next fourth and final region is Anglo-America. Now let's go over to Anglo-America. Andrew Miller, what news? Yeah, as usual, plenty of uh, of bad news in Anglo-America this week. Canada's government enacted a shocking plan to legalize assisted suicide for drug addicts. Uh, two dozen people were massacred by a deranged mass shooter in Maine, and at least two dozen U.S. troops were seriously injured on Iranian-backed militia strikes on uh, U.S. bases in Syria and Iraq. You talk about derangement, this anti-human spirit, this anti-human attitude, this anti-human force that you can see in Canada saying, are you a drug addict or do you have some health problems? Have you considered killing yourself? That's literally what the Canadian government is doing. So there is something very wrong, very strong, very powerful out there. And it's evil and it's anti-human and we've got to see that and got to start dealing with it. Uh, You've got a major story here. It's one that involves American leadership. Finally, after three weeks of gridlock in the U.S. Congress, have a new Speaker of the House and it really turned out better for the Make America Great Again crowd than, uh, than I think most people hoped for. Surprisingly, all 220 Republicans who were able to cast a vote this time voted for Representative Mike Johnson from 
Louisiana, uh, who is a familiar name for anyone uh, familiar with the, the inner workings of the Make America Great Again movement in America. Some of our, our foreign listeners may not have heard of him as he's one of 435 people in, in Congress. Very staunch evangelical Christian, staunch conservative, big supporter of Donald Trump, and perhaps most surprisingly, one of the leaders behind an amicus brief issued back in 2020 to challenge the election results in um, Michigan, Wisconsin, and uh, a couple other states, but basically make him one of the few Republicans who not only believes the election was stolen from Donald Trump, has actually taken actions to expose that theft. And so the, the, the fact that a man like that who believes the election stolen is now leading the House of Representatives is quite shocking. Like I said, he's not a Democrat or even an establishment Republican. Yeah, that's really a great victory for the, uh, <laughs> the Make America Great Again party. Big setback for the Biden crime family as Johnson's, uh, he's very gung-ho about doing impeachment inquiries into Biden family corruption. And we'll see, he may or may not have the numbers to do much with pushing forward into investigations into the stolen election, but he's definitely someone who in the past has, has moved in that direction. So the Trump supporting wing of Congress, which, remember, forced out McCarthy in the first place, uh, unhappy that he did not uh, deliver on some of the promises that they wanted. Um, they're, they're framed, of course, as the extreme, you know, wingtip of, of the right there, but uh, pr- could probably just be generally characterized as actually just conservative. <laughs> Has a, a win in ousting McCarthy, a win in resisting several other candidates. Um, didn't get Jim Jordan in there, which I think they, they were trying to do. Uh, and, and then apparently a, a solid win um, with Mike Johnson. Um, not that there's, there's great hope in, in the political system in America at all. We were going to do a whole, a whole sh- you know, segment on Wednesday about how Congress itself is broken, the entire uh, branch. But, um, but this is something that, that seems to, to go in the favor of Donald Trump, which we have spoken about a lot. Uh, but since you were, truly could have covered government-sponsored suicide in Canada, Iran trying to kill Americans in the Middle East, a deranged man killing Americans in Maine, um, what is it that made you settle on this, and, and what's the larger significance of this speakership battle? Well, yeah, you're definitely right there about the dysfunction in Congress. Uh, if you heard Speaker Johnson's opening some marks, he did a very, um, <laughs> a very eloquent speech about how that um, they were going to remove corruption from Congress and restore it to what the founding fathers intended. And I'm, I'm not holding my breath there. Uh, but uh, we do have this prophecy that our editor in chief, Mr. Gerald Flory, has highlighted um, repeatedly in his book "America Under Attack." In, uh, in Amos 7 and verse 8 about um, God uh, measuring America, so setting a plumb line in America and, and saying that he's not going to pass by them anymore, inferring that he actually is going to pass by. <laughs> if he's not going to pass by him any t- anymore, it means he is passed by at one time, basically um, restoring a little bit of sanity to politics uh, and stabilizes the country enough at least that people have a chance to repent of all the sins that created such dysfunction in yeah, Congress. The, the evil that we've been talking about, right? The, the, the evil, that, that's, that's the real source and that's why God would give 
a stopgap, a breather, a chance uh, for people to um, not just have their country last a couple extra months or years, but to to actually um, change in in their their own thinking. And then you, you pointed to America under attack. Uh, we're going to have that in the show notes. We're going to have strong German leader is imminent. He was right. Why Germany conquered Cyprus and uh, the Wall Street Journal article that we mentioned. Uh, so look for those in the show notes. Uh, you're listening to Trumpet Hour. We will be right back. Listening to Trumpet Hour, the Week in Review. Welcome back to Trumpet Hour Week in Review. We are going to finish with the roundtable on anti-Semitism this week. This is the the aftermath of the October seventh massacres in Israel has just opened up so much, and we we have to have to try to cover it all. So many significant things are connected to that. One of them is not just the thing itself or, or Israel's you know, invasion um, and, and, and reaction, but what it revealed around the world. And Mihailo Zekic, you wrote about that for the print edition, the November 11th or the November December uh, edition. So just tell us when after, after Hamas mass murderers ripped open women with child and killed children in their cribs and burned people alive. What happened in other cities around the world in reaction to that news and to those images and videos? Thousands of people on cities all over the West uh, supported Hamas. A lot of these included people from Muslim communities who never really liked Israel, but not just them. Also, a lot of far-left activists, thousands of people in various points in time, even within just a few days of the massacre, went to places like Montreal. There was a big one outside of the Israeli consulate. There were uh, thousands of people uh, on the streets of Sydney, uh, including even on the steps of the Sydney Opera House saying, gas the Jews. Uh, There were people protesting uh, in Brooklyn, outside of the residence of Jewish Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, um, when we put together our uh, current print issue, we mentioned a protest of thirty thousand people. Thirty thousand people in central London—that sounds like an astronomical number. As of last Saturday, that was beat by a protest of a hundred thousand people uh, supporting what Hamas is doing shouting things like like even have videos of people on Trafalgar Square the heart of London praying Allahu Akbar like standing up and down sh- chanting to themselves um in Paris the uh government originally tried to ban Palestinian protests but the uh the protesters wanted there was a huge protest there too people criticizing Israel for what it does with the Palestinians is nothing you but when you're seeing these photos and videos of like beheaded babies like you were talking about and all the other atrocities, you would think at the very least people would sort of keep their opinions to themselves. Yeah, lie low for a little while. Yeah, but no, they congregating in the thousands and tens of thousands in some cases to support Hamas. And it's not just the people on the street. You have a lot of world leaders even taking this kind of side too. I mentioned Antonio Guterres implying that Israel brought it upon itself. 
You had uh, what Jeremiah mentioned, uh, Putin having tea with Hamas or, or, or the Russian government when they're saying that they're trying to denazify Ukraine and they're literally supporting the people that are doing the exact same thing the Nazis did. Again, these aren't necessarily uh, all good democratic leaders that are doing this, but still it goes to show you uh, the global, not just the, what people are feeling inside, but how bold they are in expressing it and how powerless the other side is in defending themselves. Exactly. And they're tens of thousands. That's right. Yeah. I wanted to mention a, a new poll that was just published that really just provides support for what Mahalo is saying there. This was a uh, Harvard Caps Harris poll published a couple of days ago. They surveyed 2,100 American registered voters of various ages, and it revealed some just really disturbing anti-Semitic sentiments in America. And uh, it's especially dark when you focus just on the youngest American voters. If you focus on the the age bracket, 18 to 24 years old, they found that 64% of them believe Israel and Hamas have equally just causes. 37% don't believe Hamas is a terrorist group. Half believe Israel should end its campaign against Hamas. And then just over half, this is the most stunning one here, just over half believe Hamas's killing of 1,200 Israeli civilians was justified. Uh, so, you know, these are not Iranians. These are not Russians that were polled. These are Americans, young Americans who are registered to vote. And over half of them say Hamas's killing of Jews, slaughter of Jewish women and children was justified. There is uh, uh, something very strong and very widespread uh, in in America, uh, in, in the... Um in the Vatican, as as Andrew Miller wrote on the Trumpet.com, as you can read, and uh, and this is something that's been going on throughout history. This is something very big that is now bubbling to the surface. Richard Palmer, it's a warning to everybody, I and mean, it's terrible that it's happening to the Jews. But this is not just something that's bad for Jews. This is this is bad for everyone. Uh, Jonathan Friedland in The Guardian, he wrote uh, several years ago, Jews have often functioned as a canary in the coal mine. When society turns on its Jews, it's usually a sign of wider ill health. And that's a quote that's worth thinking about in terms of what we've seen all around the world. I mean, this is what you saw, obviously, during the 1930s, where anti-Semitism took root, not just in Germany. It had already taken root in France long before then. Britain, anti-Semitism was, was kind of considered cool and chic, and you had Jews excluded from... Uh, restaurants and things like that. It, that wasn't at all unusual. Uh, it was present in the United States as well during the 1930s and 40s. You know, our peoples haven't been immune to this sickness and it ended up resulting in the Holocaust. But this upheaval in anti-Semitism tend to go hand in hand. You know, as Russian society fell apart at the end of the 19th century, you had waves of pogroms sweep through the Russian empire. And it wasn't a coincidence that you had this at the same time that just the wheels come off. And you know, 19, between 1903 and 1906, you had thousands of Jews that died in a series of attacks that ran side by side with the 1905 Russian Revolution. And it was you know, these pogroms were a symptom of a terminal society that ended up destroying itself in, in the chaos of 1917 in Russia. Uh, this Jews have been persecuted in good times and bad. It's not like there's been no anti-Semitism when times are good. But certainly there is this trend here. Uh, you know, when the Black Death came and killed tens of millions of people in the 1300s, you had entire Jewish communities being burned alongside that. You had a thousand Jews burned alive in, Stra in Strasbourg. 
another commonality that you see with this that we see again now is whenever Europe gets more involved in the Middle East, attacks on Jews spike. So we heard a bit about the Catholic Church from Andrew, you know, Pope Innocent III, massive figure in terms of the Crusades, also a massive figure in persecuting the Jews. He forced the Jews to wear a special badge. Uh, and his time in the papacy was seen as a turning point in, in, in more intensified persecution against European Jews. You had 12,000 Jews during the time of the First Crusade killed in the Rhineland. Um, when England's King Richard I left to fight in the Middle Ages, you had anti-Jewish riots breaking out across the country. And so you know, you've got that trend where things go, where it goes side by side with involvement in the Middle East. Melanie Phillips tried to get to grips with some of this several years ago. She wrote, when societies and individuals find their identity fragmenting, they turn on the Jews, the Jewish people as the scapegoat onto which they project their own murderous feelings. And I think she's got a lot of wisdom and insight in, in some of what she said there. But I also think to understand why you have this connection between turmoil and, and some of this chaos and anti-Semitism is you have to see the spiritual reality that you've been talking about several, at several points on this show, that... Anti-Semitism is very strongly tied to the spirit world. And you dig into the Bible and God has a special plan for Israel. And the Jews even have a special role in that plan. And it's not about just benefiting Israel. It's a plan for the entire world. And Jesus Christ himself was born of a Jewish woman. There's a special connection there between God and the Jews and he was using that race in a way that's going to benefit the entire world. And so there is then an evil force. There's Satan. There's a real personal devil that the Bible talks about that absolutely hates that plan. And so whenever we see anti-Semitism, it's a sign of its satanic influence. And that's why it goes hand in hand then with everybody suffering. And then you had a resurrection of an empire that Satan could use and guide in Adolf Hitler during World War II. That's why it went right. You know, Hitler's hatred of the Jews is a reflection of Satan's hatred of the Jews. Hamas's hatred of the Jews is a reflection of Satan's hatred of the Jews. The widespread anti-Semitism, the chaos on American campuses is indicative of Satan's influence on American campuses and in American society. That's and so it's there's a huge danger here for everybody. There's also a massive message of hope, though, as well that God has a plan, that He is working with world events, that He is working with people in this world. And the Bible talks about God having a plan to save all mankind. And when it discusses salvation, God discusses that in family terms. When God begets someone with His Holy Spirit, they become his sons, they become brothers of Jesus Christ. The church is to become Christ's wife. He talks in terms of family. And so he talks in terms of spiritual Jews, people being invited into that, that spiritual family. And it's that vision, that spectacular vision that Jesus Christ brought to the earth, that he is a part of, that God is inviting mankind into, that Satan is attacking there's a lot of darkness in that attack that will affect, affect everybody, but there's just a wonderful plan that's full of light as well that that is a reaction against. And this is, I talked about this in an article that I wrote several years ago, the one minority society loves to hate, uh, that goes through both the history of this attack and the wonderful plan that it's a reaction to. One minority society loves to hate. The evil is there, isn't it? I mean, it is. In murdering and celebrating murder with flags and megaphones and honking car horns, 
in empowering murder with diplomatic tea time, the evil is there. And how does your university professor explain that? How does your middle school teacher explain that, that told you everything is matter and energy and everything evolved? That's ridiculous. Okay, we've got evil. We've got people choosing evil and we've got it surging. Like you said, this is this is the canary in the coal mine. And we're not talking about religion here. Um, we're talking about real world history, real world events that are happening uh, right now. And the Jew, I mean, even the existence of the Jews, uh, a better man than I has said, anyone who denies the Bible has to explain to me the Jews. Why do they even exist? Right. Let alone why are they so hated? Why is there such a thing as the Jewish people? Um, so we've got a lot to to think about, a lot to act on as Trumpet Hour listeners uh, this week. So that's all the time we do have. That's our hour. Uh, here's that aforementioned email address, letters at thetrumpet.com. You can reach us uh, that way. I thank our panel, Richard Palmer, Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, and Mihailo Zekic. And thank you to Parker Campbell and Isaac Lorenz for engineering and production. But thank you most of all, listener, for listening to the Week in Review. We look forward to being with you on Wednesday. Tune in for that edition of Trumpet Hour. Trumpet Hour.